Hello, fellow time travelers. This is Sean from the Rusted Robot Podcast and the Soul Forge Podcast. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travelers. Tony Witt here. A couple things to address before we get into the episode proper. First of all, in our last episode, The Ark, our panelist Rory asked me if the Doctor ever visited America, and I actually had to think about it for a minute before telling him that the Doctor would eventually visit New York, as he did in The Chase, without realizing that we were only two stories away from The Gunfighters, which obviously is set in America. Probably it's the lack of believable accents in that story that led me to think it took place somewhere else. The other thing I'd like to address very quickly is this is our first anniversary, and we would like you to help us celebrate it by telling us what your favorite moments from our first year were. And message us on Facebook telling us the episode and the time reference for that moment that you enjoyed so much. And if I get enough of them, I will string them together into some sort of greatest hits clip show at the end of our next episode. Anyway, let us know if you had any such favorite moments. And without further ado, here's the episode. Enjoy! Happy New Year, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the eternal task, or eternal-seeming task, of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations, and welcome to our first year anniversary. We did it! Yes, we did. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to find out what we're doing to celebrate. If we survive! If we survive! (laughs) If Allison survives, and as we need your help to do it. So there we go. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally seeming eternal three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. We also have the gang back. The band is back together. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, but has not previously read any of the books until this podcast, and this time we welcome back the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. It's nice to be back. Yes, we are, in fact, in Dalton's library. And he is still, unfortunately, a bit hors de combat, mm-hmm. but he is hosting us so that we can do this and make it even easier on, upon him. We also welcome back our semi-novice fan. You've been bumped up a little bit. Oh, yeah. One who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast and this time around. It's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Safried. Hello, Allison. Hello, and Dalton's cat is magnificent. Yes, yeah. yes. We were just talking about that. We may even... Uh, put a picture of him up on the site before we get to talking about the book and or the cat please remember our new patreon page available at https uh why do i even read that patreon.com forward slash dw target bc i just burped in the middle of that depending on the amount you give per month you receive among some other possible goodies a randomly chosen bbc book not a target book 
since we know you all have those as a gift for supporting us just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. By the time this episode is released, there will be a video at that page detailing our giveaways and a special sweepstakes we will be doing, so visit that page to find out what it's all about. As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, and Toby Bengelsdorf. Thank you, guys. We've added one since we the last have. time I was here. That's right. You didn't know about that. Nice. Toby is a colleague of mine at Truman. Nice. And he Hello, listens Toby. to podca- podcasts all the time, and he said, oh my god, it's wonderful that you're doing one. I will give $5 a month. Thanks, Toby. Thank I you. I think he gave $5. He may be giving two. It doesn't matter, because we'll take all of it. We'll Any- take anything. Anything. Even if you're willing to ship us food. Well, don't ship us food. All the right. sweepstakes prize is actual steak, but it's not really refrigerated or preserved with salt or anything. <laughs> no, so, you know, it's Trump steak. Beggars and choosers. It's um, Trump steak. So. No one wants that. <laughs> anyway, this time we're doing a fairly straightforward story, the writing, production, and novelization of which was anything but straightforward. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who the Socio Toymaker, adapted by Jerry Davis and Alison Bingaman from the script attributed to Brian Hales and Donald Tosh that aired from 4266 to 42366, published by Target Books in November 1986. As of this recording in January of 2018, this title is currently out of print, 144 pages. Let's read the blurb, shall we? For this sterling piece of literature. Somewhere outside space and time, there waits the celestial toy maker, an enigmatic being who ensnares unwary travelers into his domain to play out his dark and deadly games. Actually, they're just boring and tedious. Separated from the security of the TARDIS, the Doctor is forced to play the complex trilogic game with the evil magician. Meanwhile, Dodo and Stephen must enter into a series of tests with, among others, the schoolboy Cyril and the King and Queen of Hearts. If they lose, they are condemned to become the Toymaker's playthings for all eternity. For in the malevolent wonderland that is the Celestial Toy Room, nothing is just for fun. Including this story. Alright, there's the, there's the book. I'm going to pass that around to you. This one's going to take a bit of explanation, so bear with me, because holy crap. Am I the only one who's like totally stoked for this? Everyone else seems to be having a terrible time. Well, right? don't, don't, okay. don't give it away. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. We're not ready yet. Yeah, we're not ready. We have to give them some background. So, The Celestial Toymaker was the first script submitted to Doctor Who by Brian Hales. The late Brian Hales, I should say who would later create the Ice Warriors and the planet Peladon, both of whom and which we will be seeing much more later. We'll do a proper biography of him when we do the Ice Warriors. The thing is, the story that we get on screen this time and in this book is not what Hales submitted. At the time it was commissioned, John Wiles was still producer, Donald Tosh was still script editor, and William Hartnell was still a pain in the ass, especially with those two uh, producers. It's on his I, resume. Yeah, exactly. It's on his IMDb. Wiles requested that the Doctor disappear in the first episode, and then the plan was he was going to have a different actor appear when the Doctor reappeared. What? Sneaky, sneaky, yes. sneaky. Sneaky so-and-so. <laughs> In short, this is meant to be Wiles' wily way of firing Hartnell. Ah. Yes, but the head of serials, Gerald Savory, I love that name. Yes. Gerald Savory didn't agree with that idea, and Wiles left in pro- protest, soon to be followed by Donald Tosh, the script editor. Just tell me that Gerald Savory had a line of branded crackers or something like that? Probably not. That name? He was a playwright in the 30s, though, so you never know. Tea crackers, whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Before leaving the production team with Wiles, Donald Tosh, the script editor, had his own problems with the script. First of all, Gerald Savory, the aforementioned Gerald Savory, vetoed the use of characters from one of Savory's own plays from the 1930s. It was actually kind of a Waiting for Godot play before Waiting for Godot was written. And since Hales wasn't available for rewrites, Tosh did them and took a co-writing credit with Hales' Blessing. He was the one who came up with the idea of making the toy master, uh, the toy maker of Chinese Mandarin, because apparently the Trilogic game originated in China, and for no other reason apparently, which has gotten this story, for many reasons, called one of the most racist Doctor Who stories ever produced. But we'll have to talk about that. I was very curious about that how he was described in the book and how he actually was portrayed on the episode. I thought he might be doing some very effective damage control. Yeah, and that's the thing. Well, it's Michael Guff from the uh, first Batman trilogy, the one who played Alfred. That's the Celestial Toymaker. So if he's playing Chinese, he's playing it in essentially Yellowface. Yeah. And he didn't play it in a... Oh God, I hate using this word, but he didn't play it in a chinese way, if that makes sense. In fact, we're, we're not talking about, um, say, Mickey Rooney in uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. We're instead talking about... The fake, over-the-top accent. Yeah. We're not talking about that, even though I have read a blog recently that argues that he does do this, and that the use of the N-word in this episode is also a... Uh, reason to be worried that and i guess the fact that the word celestial used to be a kind of a slang term for the chinese hmm. oddly enough because they refer to their own uh, country as a celestial kingdom i might have read this book too quickly did someone drop an in-bomb in it and I no missed it's it? not okay. in the book it's okay. in the televised okay. version but that nursery rhyme that was a version of it. It's going to be kind of like the original <clears throat> title of Ten, Ten Little, Little Indians. Indians. Exactly yeah. right. Okay. Yes. So it was Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Mo, Catch Up by itself. And you can hear it in the original audio, very muffled. And in the BBC audio releases of it, it's talked over by the narrator, <laughs> which is a good thing. Appropriate sense of shame. All right, so back to the, the history behind this story. Then, incoming script editor Jerry Davis had to do even more rewrites on it, and those rewrites made Tosh unhappy, but who cares because he was gone by then, right? So, to hell with him. That meant, however, that the script went back to being credited to Tosh, despite Jerry Davis doing most of the rewrites, including coming up with multiple characters to be played by the three actors who had already been cast for the original script. And let's not even get started with the disclaimer that the BBC had to release about a character being too too close to a uh, previously copyrighted one, uh, the aforementioned use of the N-word, the fact that Hartnell took vacation for episodes two and three. (laughs) At least it's not a permanent vacation. Instead, let's talk about Jerry Davis because that's the important thing. And in fact, we're not even talking about Jerry Davis this time. It's weird. British writer born in 1930, dead in 1991, so again, we can go off on him as much as we want. We do not speak ill of the dead, who will? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He would soon gain fame, very soon in fact, as the co-creator of the Cybermen in Hartnell's last story, which we'll be reading in uh, March, I believe. And that's going to come up soon. Because of the fact we're reading these in story order rather than publication order, this is the first book by Davis that we're reading. But it's his last credited book. Okay. 
To make things even further confusing, it's also the only Target book with a co-writer, the only Target book written by a native-born American, and the only Target book written by someone who went on to fame and fortune in American television. Now, I did reach out to Alison Lee Bingman, as she now goes, on uh, Twitter, but as of recording time, I have not heard back from her. Uh, if she had gotten back to me, I'd have asked her about her relationship with Jerry Davis because apparently they were involved at the time or they had a professional relationship at the time or something. Uh, she went on to produce CSI Miami. She wrote for The Outer Limits, FX The Series, and Are You Afraid of the Dark? And my biggest question for her would have been, how much of this book did she actually write? I was very curious reading the foreword. I actually, as you know, love a foreword as he explains the background of this is why the story is the way it is, similar yeah. in these ways, different in these ways. But often when you have a second writer like that, it's, you know, the ghost writer or someone yeah. who effectively took a television writer's script and adapted it, but they actually wrote the novelization. Yes. But sometimes someone just kind of punched it up. So I was... Disappointed he didn't mention, like, did she work on 5% of this, 100% of this? Well, that's a good question, because uh, according to our old friend Nigel Robinson, uh, who was range editor at the time, Jerry Davis badgered him to write this book. But then Robinson was under the distinct impression that Bingaman wrote, wrote the whole thing. So, in short, we may still not be reading a Jerry Davis book. We may instead be reading the first and only Doctor Who book written by an American writer who's gone on to write better things. Or, depending on you, you, you liked it. I um, had no idea that it had such a sordid, fraught backstory. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this, this story is so problematic in There's so a lot many going ways. On. <laughs> yeah, it really does. This is how far we've gotten until we're done with Arnold. We have The Gunfighters next time, Donald Cotton, yay. Yay. We have two books by Ian Stewart Black just in time for February, which is Black History Month, so we're going to make that pun and we're going to stick to it. And then in March, we're going to finish up with The Smugglers and Tenth Planet. So yeah, that's when we'll have our first Jerry Davis book. Fun times. By the end of February, we will presumably all have been so blown away by the new Black Panther movie that we may or may not... We'll recant. Still be. <laughs> oh, not think... recoup, but recant. Well, we'll recant that we ever made the joke. <laughs> At least I'll have to. God, I can just see it now. All right, so... I'm just saying that our minds may be so blown that we may not be in a state of mind to be doing podcasts. No. Okay. I'm no. very excited about Black Panther. Well, I am too, but my mind would never be that blown. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the things that you wanted to talk about. Allison, first impressions. So apparently I liked it inappropriately too much. Oh, But partly no, because no my thing. expectations no. were so low, because okay. I found the cover art incredibly unappetizing. Oh, it's terrible. Uh, not realizing they were trying to sort of desaturate yellow face if that makes sense yeah in a way that's carried through in the book and i am usually not interested in a murder world type story yes and i i almost never find murder world especially interesting mm -hmm. and then the first couple of scenes with the doctor and dodo and steven uh were so annoying and banal and such Un, once again, unappetizing trash characterization. I thought, oh, God, I guess I already committed, and it's too yeah. late to fake sick at this point. <laughs> podcast. I, I appreciate that. So <laughs> that when the toy maker actually came in, it was so much better and more engaging than I expected that mm -hmm. I actually enjoyed a lot of the book. After mm. the 
After the, the cover I didn't like, the premise I wasn't interested in, and the opening characterizations, because this is the first one I've read with Dodo in it. I didn't right. read the last oh, that, one. Oh, that is right. And I think what I have written down in my notes is, is Dodo's thing that she is stupid? <laughs> and, well, and I'm like, is <laughs> Stephen more stupid now than he used to be? The jury's and, still out on that. <laughs> so early on, I was not into it. So this is, once again, like the infamous night that I saw a double feature of... The Spirit and Valkyrie. Oh, God. Lucky Which you. is why I have a significantly higher of opinion of the movie Valkyrie than I ever would have expected to from a movie wow. whose premise is Tom Cruise is a good Nazi. So I'm like, yeah. this isn't the worst movie I've ever seen. I just saw one of the worst movies I've ever seen. You did indeed. This is actually not bad. So it does have that kind of a boost. Right. So. Yeah. Well, when you have them side by side. Yes. Right? Once yeah. again, yes. So it could be getting a boost from my unusually low expectations, but I actually found it uh, breezy and fun, and I usually find this kind of super creepy clown music trope annoying. I'm not interested in the killer clown scenario that I actually found it quite enjoyable. Okay. All right. Dalton, first impressions? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I... I wanted to like it. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to, you know, reading reading the back of the book and kind of being like, oh, okay, it's going to be kind of more focused on the companions and, the, you know. Mm-hmm. It just, it felt so forced. Yeah. Like, everything in it was so forced. And it's like, why? <laughs> why? Um, I don't absolutely hate it, but it just doesn't live up to what I could have could have seen it be right but i kind of like the what was the the phrase you said before the battle world the battle world well, also like, murder world yeah, yeah. The murder world. character arcade and his murderous amusement park that's right the yeah comics. i kind of you know that kind of stuff is a little appealing to me but it just you know the toy maker doesn't seem as dastardly and like maniacal no. as he should be None of the the toys that he brings to life to to foil the companions in their games seem that scary mm-hmm. or over the top or menacing, and it just it's just like. Ugh. Ugh. So you thought um, it failed to live up to its potential. I thought it had no potential. So if it accomplished anything at all, I was impressed. So very yeah. differing starting points here. Um, yeah. But, it, you know, it, I think the fact that it was only about 100 pages was a good thing for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the but, most fabulous fake phrase. Yeah, you know. Move over quickly. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't uh, say enough that I'm glad that it was a quick read, yes. um, <laughs> as I'm known to say. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it just... You it, usually say it was a quick read, it was a good read. I have a feeling you're not saying this one's a good read. <sighs> <sighs> No, it was an easy read. That's easy the thing read. I always say too. Yes. But it just, it just eh. easier than usual. In fact, is something I noticed about this one, um, which is why I think Allison Bingaman um, may have been the writer on this one and not Jerry Davis. Jerry Davis's own prose, when we get to it, you'll find is not quite challenging, but it's certainly more challenging than this. This is like bare bones kitty level. 
Yeah. No one learned any new vocab words from this <laughs> no. novelization. No, this is definitely aimed at those uh, those preteens yeah. to early teens reading Pulp Fiction in the summer. Which is just bizarre given when it was novelized. I mean, we're talking 1986. That's pretty damned late in the 80s. But then again, this would be one of the mostly missing stories. And it would be one that... Here's the thing. This used to be considered a classic of Doctor Who? The episode or the, the novel version? But mainly it's because it doesn't exist. Only the fourth episode exists. Mm. The fourth episode, yeah, it's not a fantastically paced episode, but most people say, yeah, well, most Hartnells aren't. That's fine. The guest cast is just astonishing because you have Michael Guff. You have Carmen Silvera from um, the British comedy Allo Allo. She's she's Clara the clown and is all the other female figures in it, so it's got the pedigree. It's just ooh. yeah, and it's no longer around anywhere. So I think that's why it's got the reputation it does. When I talk about the trope of the sort of killer clown, I don't I don't actually know how enough about how the Joker story is developed in Batman to know when. When between the 30s and the 70s he developed his sort of modern repertoire we know of of different sort of killer gags and things like killer amusement park rides yeah. and that sort of thing. But um, my pillaging of Wikipedia, I found Murder, Murder World wasn't until 1978. I don't no. know if the sort of creepy killer clown, killer amusement park concept might have been fresher then. I don't no. think so. Okay. And it Doctor, had already been around for a while? Yeah. And Doctor Who's going to revisit it with uh, Greatest Show of the Galaxy in 1989. So it's not like it's going to not go back to this well. Yeah. As a matter of fact, they did try to bring the social toy maker back in the mid-80s. His shtick was going to be video games at that point, which would have been a little more interesting. But, well, we'll get there when we get there. There's a sad story behind it. And we will have a book of it, as it turns out, because they novelized the... Uh, the stories that they didn't make for the novelization versus the episode i I was wondering if he was intentionally he or she if whoever was writing most of this was intentionally um sort of shifting and massaging the structure a bit to make it more obviously you know nintendo like such obvious levels of play that you're going through or if that was just the original no it's there okay in fact i didn't even see levels of play um, you're, you're, I thought he was trying to make. They were trying to make it a bit more modern. So. Oh, I, well, no, I don't think so. I, I, I think <laughs> no one you, tried. No one succeeded. I, Let's I, all go I home. think you spotted something in it that I didn't. Uh, I'll, because, I'll get to what I spotted. In because it. when I listened to the audio, which was just painful, and when I read the book, which is even more painful for me, I just sort of sat there and thought, okay. There's got to be some structuring to this. The games aren't necessarily getting more dangerous as they go. They're basically on the same level of danger. It's just two of the players knock out by the time you get to episode four. So you don't get the clowns. You don't get Mrs. Wiggins and Sergeant uh, What's-His-Name. And you don't get the uh, King and the Queen of Hearts. So you only have Cyril. And then you run into a trademark problem because he says, some people call me Billy, and that's an ad-lib on the actor's part because it looks like, oh God, what is the name of that character? From the 30s, Billy Bunt, something or other. Anyway, it's a British character. Not one that we would know. But the BBC had to do a disclaimer on it. Mm-hmm. So, I'm sorry, I'm talking too much about the televised version. I should be talking about the book since the book... Well, but it also gives you a context of distaste. That's this revered episode that you think is 
Yeah. Not very good based on the audio. I, I'll tell you what my first impression was. Because I first read this book back when it first came out. But I, I sped through it. Because I was like, uh, this is a story that I haven't seen before. It's not particularly interesting to me for the same reason. It's like, oh, group of uh, games, what have you. And then the prose is just weird. And then I don't know if you caught this, but there's an, there are two or three tie-ins to the possibility of nuclear disaster. Yes. That's yeah. a theme. Yes. Yeah. That, that is in the not original? in okay. the original. That is 1986 rearing its ugly head yeah. and trying to make us listen to Crowded House and all the other things that came out in the mid-80s. So the original episode didn't feature the models of the different nuclear delivery no, vehicles? Okay. Not at all. As a matter of fact, here's, a, here's the other problem. The uh, set for this one was bare bones because the arc basically blew the budget for the season. Yeah, mm-hmm. the arc, the expensive story. Everything else had to be budgeted accordingly, and this one, this one got chopped pretty heavily. Yeah. So not much of a uh, not much of a uh, set to it. Uh what else to discuss? So you caught the nuclear references. Oh, yeah. totally. Yeah. It's pretty heavy-handed. Yeah. Like, yeah. smack me in the face yes. ten times with it. Like, <laughs> but I wasn't expecting anything like that at all. So it didn't offend me quite quite as much I because. Think. I didn't think it was preachy throughout. It's just there are only two scenes where it's mentioned. So it actually, proportionally, I didn't think it was too much. Even right. though it's very overt. It's one or two paragraphs yes. and two instances. So mm-hmm. I, yeah. But whereas in the past and in, in other stories that we've read, mm-hmm. they have addressed you know these larger themes, and this one is so heavy-handed with it, and it seems so out of place. Yeah. It was it was honestly an assumption or like an idea that I formed on my own, and then the story very heavy handedly said it. <laughs> In and case I was you like, missed something, yeah. and I was just like, "Why did you do that? Yeah. Why did you do that?" Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it and some of the other stories we've read, it's been a little more nuanced and a little more kind of. There's no nuance to this one. Just like... delicately kind of placed within it, but this one is so just why. Yeah. I agree. I feel like Dalton and I have switched bodies or brains or something here. <laughs> you really have. Yeah. That's what happens when I have two months off. <laughs> well, normally, normally the ones screaming, oh God, why are you doing this lame thing yet again? I'm like, oh, there are new lame things in here. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Speaking of lameities, if that is a word, how do you two feel about Dodo? I'm going to ask you and I'm going to tell you how the last panel felt about her. I felt that she and Stephen were both presented as almost complete personality blanks. I thought it was interesting that in the first couple of chapters, they are portrayed as just sort of two different morasses of negative emotions and pure reactionaryism in a way that's actually not especially engaging and doesn't present much characterization. Yeah. Once again, I thought, oh, this is going to be a really long 105 pages. Right. But then once the actual gameplay began, they had some actually some amusing zingy dialogue that it could be any two characters exchanging that dialogue. Exactly, that's but, how I felt. But when they are acting, I mean, it's it's a plot-driven book. Mm-hmm. So I thought that one of the strengths was the 
economy of once we once we've gotten through those initial two agonizing scenes with the TARDIS crew. Um, was, you know, if a plot-driven story, we want to get to it right away. Right. And once those were out of the way, I felt they did that, and I no longer wished for them to have an early demise on the obstacle course <laughs> I had in the beginning. So, I would say almost no characterization. All right. Well, Despite the, the, the attempt to characterize their... The attempt to characterize their states of mind in the beginning just made them seem stupid, annoying. The first people to die in a horror movie, you're glad <laughs> of it, and you feel badly that you're rooting for people to die. Yeah. In short, Carl on The Walking Dead in many ways. Oh, yeah. So. I honestly <laughs> thought that Dodo was going to die when she sat on the throne. Oh. I was like, okay, okay, she's a throwaway character, yay. <laughs> um, yeah, like you said, I, di- I didn't feel like there was any characterization. Even though I had read a couple of the stories with Steven in it, he could have been anybody. Yeah. He could have been anybody. He really could have. And it, I mean, yes, it is plot driven, but it's, there's nothing there to, to give us anything to hold on to and to care about these people. Yeah. Which I thought was a relief because they're so, Stephen has been so tedious. And like I yeah. said, I keep waiting for him to be developed and it doesn't really happen. That no. I'm, I'm content with having him, you know, rel- have relatively few lines and little characterization because he's just yeah. a body moving through the story to interact with time and space. And maybe part of me expecting someone to die is the want in me for the toy maker to be more evil than he is. Yeah, there's not much of a sense of menace here. Um, mm, I thought. I thought there was more of a sense of menace, not of, not of malice, but sort of high-handed, casual about the death of other beings. Yes. Menace, um, where it's not that the toy maker is anxious to destroy anyone in particular. He's just mm-hmm. looking for interest and entertainment and someone to engage with, and he just doesn't mind doing it. He moves along. Usually, stories with sort of a demented carnival theme are so over the top in trying to establish cruelty, crazy eyes, super creepy music, yeah. that they become much more about showing horror than building menace. And right. so I thought it was actually nicely restrained. It's actually only with the end of Cyril that we have some pretty extreme violence. Yeah, and yeah. it's not explicitly described at all. But True. I thought it actually gave the the underlying dementedness of the scenario, a little more room to breathe without it being all about people being set on fire or impaled yeah. on spikes or something like sure. that. Cyril was more of an antagonist than Toymaker was. Oh, yeah, I agree. <clears throat> He's more impressive in the story than the... Cyril had me feeling more things in that last game than the Toymaker had in the whole book. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and luckily that is performance you can actually see. Yeah. Same thing with the Sister Toymaker, except you get the episode four performance. What I find a little disturbing about this is that even though whoever has written this book <laughs> has quite clearly made it clear that the Toymaker traps people in his realm, has them play games, and if they, if they don't win the game, they become his toys, all the people that Steven and Dodo have played against are indeed real people. There's not that sense of, oh my god, we're playing against people that were trapped here and they were innocents, same as us. Dodo does have a sense of that at the end. She does. but Not that they are people who were trapped, mm-hmm. but she talks about they live secret lives 
He brings yeah. their dormant. He, the toy maker brings. We'll never them look to at life. the dog the same way again. Right, but he he's not completely in control of all of their thoughts. He can control their actions, but he has to manipulate them the way he has to manipulate a person. They're not truly robots. Right. I thought it was the idea that she was, she was starting to catch on to sort of some elements of what was going on, but she doesn't understand yeah. the full horror, whereas we do, which is a lot of the premise of what the situation she and Stephen are, are in the entire time. Right. They usually don't know the full context of what's going on. No. It's like when the, to the toy maker refers to the two clowns as what we call the home team. Right. They don't understand yet that they're going to be playing against them for keeps. They think that they're yes. just sort of fellow travelers at first and then they have a slow dawning realization mm -hmm. that the clowns are, are the home team. But that could have been that could have been so much more emphasized because really the sense of menace in this book needs to be stronger. It's almost there on screen too, but even there the sense of menace isn't quite there. That would have raised the stakes. Yeah. It, it really would have. It would have it would have given us a little more reason to want Steven and Dodo to succeed, mm -hmm. other than just for their own good. Or even to feel somewhat ambiguous about their succeeding because we realize, oh, they played against people who have been trapped here and probably yeah. deserve to get out just as much as they did. Yeah. But, but the menace is this is their fate yeah. if they stay. They will become like this in this sort of eternal recurring hell of mm. having to help trap other people, being in some way conscious, but in other ways having mostly forgotten who they were before not being able yeah. to control themselves. I thought it was actually kind of a nice, subtle horror that this would be their fate. Yeah. Not just being impaled on a spike or something, but to become the sort of helpers of the toy maker mm -hmm. who trap others. I would want more of that, though. I would yeah. want more of that. I would want someone like... I could see a writer like an Ian Martyr or even Terrence Dix, for crying out loud, going into the story and saying, I can punch this up a little bit, but it seems like <clears throat> either Davis or Bingaman or both aren't all that interested in adding to the story much at all. In fact, there's nothing added except for that two-by-four over the head about nuclear possibilities. I disagree. Okay. Because I think what I'm importing <laughs> into all of this is a metaphor for the modern economy and corporate life. Good God. So, well, no, no. I think it's kind of overt in some ways. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but I'm thinking, hmm. I'm thinking specifically of the snakes and ladders sequence. Okay. As they slowly figure out that there's no way to actually complete the obstacle course following the rules. Oh. That the clowns are changing the positions of the items. Once mm -hmm. Steven's seen the course, he's going through blindfolded. He's really in a blindfold. Later he finds out mm -hmm. that the male clown had gone through with a transparent quote, blindfold, end quote. Oh. He said to crawl through a flexible tube. They turn it around so that he's actually made a full circle. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the stepping stones are moved around, but the clowns keep taunting him, whoa, it's really easy. Why don't you just do it right? And oh. I think what struck me, I, I, my corporate gig is a few years behind me now, was... <laughs> yes. The sort of myth of meritocracy and our sort of modern, ah. in the corporate world and in education is actually what I'm thinking of, the sort of 
scheme of the, the illusion of meritocracy and this network of different kinds of ratings and metrics and mm -hmm. evaluations and hoops to jump through. And well, these people who have succeeded have just done it well enough. They just worked hard and were smart. If you're not succeeding in that system, mm -hmm. you may not have done it right. But yeah. I think that's what I emotionally responded to more was the way the clowns just got very casual. But, oh, nothing to it. You just complete this and that. Mm -hmm. We'll go through it, show you how it's done. Now, you go through it. It's all the same. But they are changing the game to make it completely unwinnable for these other people after them. And I thought that was what okay. worked because that's, that applies to many sort of situations in life. But I have a very honest question for you. Do you think that that theme was intentional on the part of the writer, or do you think that that's something that your own experience as a reader is bringing to it? It could be either way, but once again, it's pounded so many times, mm. especially in that first game um, that it, I mean, for some people this can work in like extended family education, just working in education but going through a grad program at U of C or something right, like right. that well you know you need to do this and this and that and I know you've been here for 15 years working on your doctorate but we've decided you haven't quite earned your way through oh, yet that's a that, thought um, Murder World only works in an interesting way for me when it's a metaphor. So on mm -hmm. Peter David's second run on X Factor is like 2006-ish. Mm -hmm. And then I think continues into the heat death of the universe. Um, <laughs> he has a, he has X Factor be sort of greeted by Arcade in Murder World in an oh God, what does life really even mean anymore way where the heroes have had a series of Pyrrhic victories all of their heroics seem to have been in vain. Mm -hmm. And it's this sort of nihilistic story about they do have to fight and make it through Murder World in order to survive, but what is even the point? Because if we survive this, we'll just be some other maniac, right. some other mission. And it worked because it was so pointless. Okay. And similarly, there's an episode of Supernatural, I think around the fifth season, where the heroes are uh, trapped in a series of television shows and they have to go through oh, thinly right. veiled versions of Grey's Anatomy and Three's Company <laughs> and an <clears throat> STD medication commercial. Oh my God. One of them has to say, I have herpes several times. Um, well, a couple, that comes couple, from. A Japanese <laughs> game show and some other things, but the whole point that the trickster god mm -hmm. in that episode is trying to teach them is play your role and what they have to do is uh, okay. play the part that they're familiar with in order to get through that one and work for the next scenario yeah. and that's the quote lesson in mm -hmm. quote so this worked for me i think almost exclusively because of the snakes and ladders sequence okay and that's how i well i think we responded to it in that way and i i think it may have just been my unwillingness to give it that much credit because by the time i got there i was well and truly done with the book mm -hmm. It was everything I could do to push myself to the end of it. Isn't that that's chapter it. two or three yeah. out of ten? Okay. That that's... tells you something. Yes, it does. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I didn't like this book the first time I read it, and I liked, disliked yeah. it even more this time. But, yeah, it may very well be. And come to think of it, there's, there's probably some good evidence for that, because if Bingaman is the sole author of this, as we suspect she was, then this is at the very beginning of her career as a writer-producer in Hollywood. Mm. And God only knows what the young woman of that talent would have had to go through to get where she is now in the late 80s. Well, so it could very well be that that's that feeling of the about, rules are constantly changing. 
my own experience and other people's work experiences, but also reading two or three weeks ago Salma Hayek's piece in the New York Times mm -hmm. about um, making Frida. Uh, Frida, yeah, mm -hmm. and like at, at one point Weinstein telling her after he, she had been rejecting different sexual overtures for months, he said, all right, first I'm going to have the film made, you're going to have to, I think the three requirements were do a complete script rewrite with no budget and raise $10 million more and have four high profile actors so, uh, yeah, signed for minor roles. And she actually did it. No one could believe she could. Wow. And basically she was able to do it because she was already a big star. Mm -hmm. Edward Norton was uh, uh, willing to rewrite the script for free, uncredited, wow. and be one of the four actors. She was able to recruit others. So none of us could ever possibly have done that because we don't already know a lot of people who are powerful and generous and rich and willing to help True. in that way. But Weinstein was creating the idea of, well, you know, it's a tough business, you know, meritocracy. You've got to jump through these hoops. You've got to have funding. You've got to have stars. Hmm. But we know from the story that those were artificial requirements that he created. Yes. And it's extraordinary that she managed to actually meet all three of those because there was a deadline of a month or something oh, like wow. that. And one of the other things that he told her is, you know, your, your entire value in this movie is your sex appeal. You've got to lose the unibrow and the limp. So in a biographical film, he's saying, no. look and act less like the person you're oh portraying. Yeah, so I was like, does he know who Frida Kahlo no. was or well, something? Obviously well, not. And, yeah. and she survived this. And yeah. I remember, like, reading there's this horrible part of the article reading about how he required, like, the final hurdle is she has to do this lesbian love scene that is completely out of the tone of the rest of the film yeah that is completely gratuitous in such a way that that, that that's not how she's portraying other relationships right. and just her you know extreme you know day, that day reaction to having to do this scene that was basically someone refer, requiring her to do a personal porn instead of an artistic piece. Because she'd Jesus. done nude scenes before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't that. No, no. And she actually managed to do it, but then she was criticized for putting in this gratuitous, titillating scene, for not quite seeming as much like Kala. Oh, she wanted to glam it up a bit. She was the one who was criticized for making was a very good film when it could have been great, but those were the requirements for getting no. it made at all. So you're right. I was bringing a shit ton of personal and public background into this book. <laughs> I could see that. Because I thought it was a good metaphor for that kind of situation. And in fact, I think we're both approaching this with as much baggage, but different type, yeah. types of baggage. Yeah. I'm not meaning to call it baggage, because that implies it's yeah. emotional and therefore useless. It's not But we all. know from the foreword right. that they were told, you can use these characters. Mm -hmm. And then after the script is written and turned in, no, you can't have these characters. Many of us... Dwayne McDuffie was writing, was it JLA or JSA? Basically, he was told when he agreed to, to write it, you can use the Milestone characters. Yes. Of course, he had created several of the Milestone right. characters. And then, after he was already signed for this run on the book, he was told, no, you can't use the Milestone characters. Mm -hmm. And then was criticized for various lame factors in that run, where right. he was having to write editorially mandated stories with characters that weren't even the ones he was told he could use, and yet he as the writer was held fully responsible True. for that when he was just 
trying to work with what was left over. So I don't, I don't know which of the authors we're hearing here. It's pretty believable that either one of them could bring a lot of personal work history oh, yeah. to that kind of scenario. Because yeah. this so. would have been the very first story that Jerry Davis script edited, and it sounds like it was a nightmare. And this might be the very first book that Alison Bingaman has written, and it sounds like... Here's a weird thing. I have a feeling that the reason why our good friend Nigel Robinson thought that she wrote it was because he thought it was such an awful book because he'd already read some of Jerry Davis's prose before. And it's like, oh, God, there's so many parallels going on there, mm. whether there's less of an expectation mm. of a female writer to do a better job of it mm. because the book isn't that great, therefore it's got to be her fault, or could it just be that Jerry Davis is towards the end of his life at that point and this is a book that was a story that was problematic to write to begin with? Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't. I haven't read anything by either of them. I haven't watched other things they've Nor written. Nor have I. Nor have I. Screen, so I Not know, knowingly. Enough. I don't know if it would be I mean, being obvious to someone who knew what his style or her style who wrote this or not. Davis's style, as I said, tends to be a little stronger than this. But you could just say this is his last book. I mean, he's going to, this is, what, 86? He's going to be dead by 91? Yeah, but he so doesn't know is, that. Particularly. He doesn't know that. No. no, of course not. But he's not going to do any other work. Well, I don't think he's going to do any other work. Actually, that's not true. He actually tried with one other author whose name I forgot to buy the rights to Doctor Who from the BBC to produce it in America. They were the first ones to try that. And it didn't succeed, which is probably a good thing. Tony Witt here, interjecting in post to tell you that the writer in question was Terry Nation, creator of the Daleks. Thank you. But, in fact, when we get to a full Jerry Davis book, I'm going to have so much to say about Jerry Davis and his co-author, um, the other one whose name I'm blanking out on for some reason, and not all of it's going to be nice, but it has nothing to do with this book, strangely enough. Other factors in this book, Dalton, I, I get the impression that you also dislike this book almost as much as I did. So you weren't reading into it the same I was degree. definitely not reading into it on that level. Having Allison uh, expound upon it, I, I see it. Mm -hmm. I see it. I, yeah, I, I, I believe I, it is there. I agree with it. I'm a sucker yes. for futility. No, <laughs> no. Um, but it's definitely, you know, like I said before, it's not something that I immediately, like, grasped onto, like, in other books where I was like, oh, this is definitely what they're getting at. Right. Um I didn't see it that way. I definitely saw it as more just kind of straightforward. This this celestial toy maker is just toying with these people and fucking with them, and <laughs> it's it's so on the nose. On the nose, and and even the games themselves are so simple. Yeah. That even when he changes the rules, it is just like, but why? Yeah. There was a point during the game with Cyril where they're talking about it looking like a pinball table, and I'm like, this looks sounds more like hopscotch to me yeah. why even like make that parallel with it being like pinball it's yeah. like no it's hopscotch it's hopscotch it's, and just some of some of the the rules and the riddles and things I, even reading it on the page i was just like this doesn't seem that difficult yeah, to for crying out. out loud we know it's about furniture right. <laughs> and with uh the maid and the the sergeant oh yeah I, I immediately knew the second that they said that she was making a pie, <laughs> that the key was there. in the pie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. with the <coughs> with the king and the queen and figuring out the thing with the dolls, it just 
I don't know. No every, surprises. No surprises at all. It's it's so just like steamrolling forward. Like okay, well we know that they're gonna get off. Maybe like I said, I I I had like a glimmer of hope that Dodo was gonna die. <laughs> like to make to make something to make something interesting happen. You're usually yes. Mr. Sunshine, but underneath it lurks the darkness. Oh, I, just, yes. I just wanted I just wanted something to happen because it's like something <laughs> grisly. Honestly, to Dodo preferably. Well. I, I, I haven't read the last book it's yet. It's perfectly natural for you to um, expect Dodo to go extinct. Yeah, this, this was the first... <laughs> this was the first story I read with her in it. But still, it, it felt like something's gotta happen. There has to be something to raise the stakes. And nothing really even... Nothing really when they, Even when they tried to, nothing really got to that point of making me feel like they were in peril. No. Like, I always felt like they're gonna make it to the end. And even the doctor... You know, you have to figure out this game in exactly 1,032 or 23 moves. It it was like, well, that sounds crazy, but it's like, we're also talking about the Doctor, and <laughs> I know that, like, he's not, nothing's going to happen to him. Are talking about the Cracker Barrel peg game? Yeah. Where you have, like, the triangle. It's basically and, that. Yes, and, you know, there's a, a score on the back of, it takes you, you know, 12 moves or more, you're an ignoramus. It's exactly I that. was surprised you used, used to be a... Surprise to learn used to be a scientific categorization. Literally, <laughs> along with <laughs> along with critter and imbecile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But I actually did like that as a sort of metronome and a countdown for the story, yeah. and that it it seemed a little more human scale than what the doctor usually has to do. Mm-hmm. That it's a very difficult puzzle that I can imagine would be a little bit more than I would be able to do. I know someone could do it. I can't quite do it. So mm. I thought that the fact that the stakes were lower made them seem a little bit more relatable yeah. in some ways. Like, okay. this yeah. is obvious looking from the outside. This is, the, 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 like you said, the, the key is in the pie. But at the moment, I don't know if the key was in the pie. So I thought the low stakes did work a little bit for it there. Okay. But yeah. a very little bit. Mm-hmm. A very little bit. <laughs> Interesting that um, both of you, both of you thought that you know, Dodo and Stephen didn't come off all too well in the story because uh, Jenny and they're very Rory, much players in a game. I mean, yeah. they are tokens. They oh, yeah. are the car and the shoe. Yeah, precisely. Whereas <laughs> and, Jenny and Rory both loved Dodo, and which in the last book, which surprised me because I, I have difficulties with Dodo simply because her personality changes every single story. She's not nailed down in any way, shape, or form. And here, she's so free-floating, she could be anything. So yeah. not having not having seen the performance, mm-hmm. how does this, um, do you think, contradict or sync with the on-screen portrayal of Dodo? Because mm. I have no sense of this character whatsoever. There's not much of her there. Um, and it's not that Jackie Lane is a bad actress. It's that Jackie Lane doesn't know what character she's playing from week to week. Because she was hired on and told that she would be... Uh, Flightless bird, and they're like, no. oh, this dress. <laughs> she no, no, she was told... <laughs> you she, heard it here first, folks. She was told that she would have a northern accent. And they were told that they were not allowed to have regional accents with main characters. So she had to have oh a much more... Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's some, like, 1930s stuff, at least stuff, I would yeah, think. Yeah, they were told that uh, they wow. had to be received pronunciation. Uh. So her accent that she was introduced with in the very last episode of The Massacre, gone. 
That was the most interesting thing about her in that. In the arc, she's played off as a young, precocious, Vicky-like character, and she's actually interesting. In the book, she's more interesting on the page, which is great. Here, on screen, she's wearing one of those kind of weird leather hats that were popular in the 50s and 60s and are still popular in leather bars, and wearing some sort of mod-type outfit. So it's almost, it's hard to describe it. but it's, in fact, I'm going to do a Google search for it real quick and show you because it's a cute <laughs> outfit. Weird leather hat could come up with some interesting hits. Well, yeah. I'm just going to say Dodo Celestial Toymaker. Thank you for the refill. Um, yeah, so it's basically just a matter of... Yeah, it's... I don't dislike Dodo because I dislike Dodo. I dislike Dodo because there's no substance to her. There's nothing there. She's, she's at Stephen level... Stephen levels of emptiness. There is actually a certain interesting gender parody in this story in that both Stephen and Dodo are at first both stupid and loathsome and bickering in a way that's, well, it's not witty. It's just like, you know, it's not Gilmore Girls bickering. It's, you know, your actual eight-year-old and ten-year-old bickering. Right. Sort of sort of tiresome. Um, She's it, looking at me. Oh, here it is. But it's, it's interesting that Stephen is at least as tiresome as Dodo, if not more. That's Dodo, that's Steven, and that's uh, Cyril. Oh, that is the worst hat. Isn't it? That, I, the rest of the outfit's kind of doing it for me, though. Yeah. It's 1966, yeah. so that's what the uh, young whippersnappers would have been wearing out. Love a bold out graphic print. Geometric. Yeah. yeah. But to show you the celestial toy makers, so you can see whether or not there actually is some yellow face going on. So, Tony, were we on air just discussing it in the car on the way to the convention when we were talking about the yellow face in that story in the book versus the episode and Ben Cal Ben Kingsley Mandarin was written for the Iron Man three movie. Yes, we was, were. were we on air for that? Yes. Okay. And people enjoyed that discussion, by the way. So okay, I'm is. looking at the photo and oh my god, the best I can say is it's Spock on a bad day. Yeah, but that's <laughs> the way Michael Guff looks like anyway. But all right, so here's an interesting sort of modern conversation about problematic. AKA super racist or super sexist stories more. from the past. I thought that the way that the writer or writers wrote it here actually worked because they say he is dressed as a Mandarin. Yes. Mm-hmm. He's wearing the robe, and the idea is that he is super pretentious and wearing a costume. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, that doesn't look yeah. as much like, I mean, he's he's not like wearing yeah. makeup or anything. It's yeah. literally, he's just wearing the costume right. yeah. of. The culture. That's a way to deal with the story that gets rid of that extremely gross yellow peril, yellow face element. I would agree. That's sort of like, you know, having Ben Kingsley be revealed not as the Mandarin, but as a character high as as a character actor hired to portray a racist stereotype instead. So in this case, well, he's not actually Chinese. He's not a Mandarin. He's a guy who likes fancy clothes and is pretentious, and this is what he's chosen to put on. Yes. I thought it was a good way of dealing with it. And I think that's how they... Um, I if think if they don't want to actually get into the full-on Yellow Peril issue, which is right. not the story they're telling here. No, it's not. And mm-hmm. that's <clears throat> that's why I think the blog that I read um, may be reading a little too much into it by saying that the name itself is suggestive of China. And the Are they talking about the episode Celestial toy maker, yeah. The fact that the story is called that. Even though, oh, 
I'm trying to remember if any of the individual episodes recall that. I think the first episode is called The Celestial Toy Room, and that kind of works. That works, but... Is the imagery used in this book... This is actually the first thing I felt kind of pleasant in the book after mm-hmm. the scenes with the TARDIS crew were so off-putting, was I actually liked the simplicity of setting the scene of him in the toy room where the walls sort of visually dissolve off into this into space. canopy oh, no. yes, of the stars, and he has you know, hundreds of thousands of dolls and toys and tables set up with different kinds of games mm-hmm. and pinball machines and different kinds of marionette theaters. I actually kind of like. <laughs> so is it literal, is the celestial toy maker literally celestial in that way in the episode? No. Okay. Meant to be. I think the intention was that. I think the suggestion is that. And I think that's one of the things that when Jerry Davis is talking about adding things in this novelization mm-hmm. in his foreword, that's what he means. Mm-hmm. That all that's there. Of course, it's countered by the fact that then he refers to the Celestial Toymaker's place as his office. <laughs> Sometimes the... The prose just comes clunking down. I thought that was supposed to be a joke, but obviously I was far too generous. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just like, uh I would like to also point out that as I was traveling here tonight, I was going through my own version of the obstacle course that involved <laughs> an amazing pratfall on granite stairs on public transit, wherein I thought... Before I stood up, I no longer have 36 points of articulation. I'm down to 32 because those wrists and knees are gone. Turned out to be a complete overreaction was fine. Um, I actually have audio-visual evidence of this, if anyone really wants to call me on it. When I changed trains, there was a band of an electric guitar with amp, a full drum kit, and the biggest xylophone I've ever seen outside of a symphony orchestra performing on a subway (laughs) ventilation grate next to some solar-powered trash compactors in front of the Chicago Theater. They were performing Hotel California. <laughs> and it was quite trippy and in tune with what the score of a story like this might actually be. You would think so. <laughs> Except this is a, one of those stories, and this is going to be a problem when I'm editing this episode. Um, it's got a very minimalist soundtrack. So I'm going to be... Which I've actually figured out is almost the entirety of my lack of enjoyment of watching those early episodes is I'm so used to soundtracks yeah, of the last, of my lifetime, yeah. 80s, 90s, 2000, we're told how to feel from the music. Yes. And I the silence. It's so vacuous. It's so just like. Well, it's not that, oh, I don't know how to feel. The silence, I'm, I, I have trouble sometimes understanding the authorial attempt. I mean, intent, like, was that supposed to be a joke? Because it's not a laugh track oh, yeah. show. It's just good if I hit a laugh well, track. I tend but... to prefer those silences. But, yeah. Um, and they're very. It sounds awkward to the to the younger ear, I suppose. Yeah, and there are various other problems with this book that I specifically had trouble with, such as I'm taking serious umbrage with paragraph uh, paragraph on page thirty seven that describes Dodo as the responsible one and Stephen as the one who blunders in all the time. That might almost have made sense if these characters had had more adventures than they have, but the arc was yeah. the first time we've seen her in a full story, so where yeah. exactly is that inaccurate assertion coming from? There's an interesting undercurrent here of really gendered insults between yeah. Stephen and Dodo, and then also later between uh, the sergeant and the cook, yeah. mm-hmm. where I think they're showing at the beginning, you know, Stephen and Dodo, you know, sort of trade these insults of, you know, he... First, her being, you know, I think, like, 
inappropriately afraid, and she mm-hmm. refers to him charging in, dressed like a man would. That's or something exactly like that. that. That's where it is. And then later, well, and then the in the the first course, the obstacle course, um, Clara, the female puppet, says, "Oh, you know, he's going to run the course. You're going to call it because he's the brains and you're the brawn." Oh. And then he makes a disgusted face, and I thought, "Oh, it's Stephen learns that gender essentialism is actually bad for everyone." <laughs> <laughs> but then later, with the cook and the sergeant. You know, the cook is always referring to the sergeant as, you know, afraid of a pussycat. And he's like, very sexualized insults of his masculinity. Mm -hmm. And he refers to how unappealing she is in hearing that I thought the writers may be trying to show the characters in a way, how ugly that gets, how quickly. And during the scene in the Victorian kitchen, it's almost like you can smell cabbage and bad breath and you see (laughs) those insults are so easy to make yeah i've made them so many times in my life if you've heard my story about how a job that i was about to quit the last day i Mm -hmm. referred to a truck dispatcher who had been such an ass to me as i called that man princess daisy (laughs) buttercup i forget what like i came up with like five different nouns of direct address for him my last day and he actually gave me this grudging look of respect i had never gotten from him before (laughs) and i'm not proud of this but i knew it would work and it did yeah and so i I think there is something in there that shows them sniping at each other in this really lazy gendered way at the beginning that at the end sort of shows how really grotesque that becomes. Yes. And they're not talking to each other that way at the end. No. So it, it could be, and I, I might be giving more credit than is due here, but it could be that the author is trying to show them, mm-hmm. trying to show them that that's not a way to bicker that's going to turn out well for anyone, that it's going to curdle and sicken. Maybe. Or maybe I was just so overwhelmed by the high quality of the performance of Hotel California (laughs) on xylophone with an amp on a subway ventilation grate that I was feeling generous. I think you may have just made the best argument for this being solely the authorship of Bingaman then. Because I could see Bingaman, not knowing the rest of her work, I could see Bingaman as a female writer in the 80s in America putting that in subtly. Jerry Davis would would not be the sort of person that I would think would do anything with gender dynamics. In fact, he would do just the opposite, mm-hmm. as we're going to see. We've seen those kinds of insults before, but I'm not, in, in these novels from several authors, I'm not sure before we've seen such self-consciousness on the part of the author that this is gross. Yeah. This is, this is like I said, curdling in a, in a sort of Well, except for the Zarbi. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, Barbara, I'm glad you're awake. Will you make us some eggs? <laughs> yeah, but the author doesn't seem to realize that's grotesque. No. Whereas here you have the sort of older, not couple, they're not a romantic couple, but older man and woman later in life, and they it's so easy for them to push one another's buttons with these kinds of insults in a way that's yes. so wearying, so and, defeating. And in that same chapter? So futile. The other weird thing about it is that Dodo is flirtatious towards uh, the sergeant and at one point um, she's described as warming to being treated like a woman at last and part of me felt really just icky at that That actually was strange to me in the context because I thought they were showing both the sergeant and the cook to be like pathetic yeah yeah 
And yeah. then that response seemed off of the tone. Yeah, well, it's because Dodo, of the two of them, Dodo has trouble separating the fact that they may indeed be human from the fact that they are their antagonists. Stephen yeah. is like, no, there's, they're not real. We're, they are our enemy. They are our enemy. We need to defeat them. Which you'd expect from Stephen, because he's kind of military. Yeah. Kind of. He's an astronaut and an actor and a swordsman and whatever. <laughs> All those Wait other a minute, things. I missed where he's supposed to have also been an actor. Oh yeah, we found that out in uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, previous uh, books. It was either the massacre or the uh, the arc. We found out that Stephen in astronaut school also studied acting and fencing. Because that's what you do in the future. So he's like in the future, you're an astronaut and an actor. He's like yes. the weakest George Takei possible. I guess. Uh, yeah, hmm. it's such a shame, really. <laughs> but yeah, such weird things. So strange. Um, anything else that's stuck out to you? What you saw as a weakness of the language, I saw as a lovely lack of pretense. Really. Yeah, that okay. it's. I've used the word economic before for other, others of these novels, and said I know it sounds like an insult, but I don't mean it that way. Yeah, yeah. Plot-driven, very simple imagery, very simple set pieces. It could be a lot more complex, but I think what worked for me in terms of making a breezy book is that. It seems very simple, but it's once again very hard to write action in a way that it's this easy to follow even though you are dealing with physically complex situations that is true and that that was a sort of invisible skill there Mm -hmm. i thought that often a screenwriter lacks because they are able to actually describe the action to be plotted and they don't have to describe it for the end receiver of of that i think you may have convinced me on that score though i'm not going to change my rating (laughs) that's quite all right but i thought it was simple in a way that can be hard to put off in such a plot driven physical story well it also makes sense uh that bingaman would be an aspiring screenwriter she would want to make sure that she gets this sort of thing right and accurate okay and what other stories uh, you said i'm sorry what other shows you said she had written Uh, on csi miami eventually she's a producer on csi miami outer limits Affects the series and are you? And what about Davis? What other shows have you worked on? Doctor Who. (laughs) No, he was on others as well. But by the late eighties, he had moved to America, and I think he worked on some American television. Was it like similarly sci-fi and action pieces or possibly? In fact, I I'm interested enough now that I want to look that up real quick because that uh, that's something that I used to know, and I. I got so annoyed with the story that I probably didn't do as much uh, research into it as I should have. I mean, from what you have told me from the source material, not flamingly racist is unfortunately an accomplishment of this book. <laughs> Something they shouldn't have had to have accomplished, but some combination of these two people did manage to do that in a way that didn't make it a completely different story. Oh. Uh-oh, we're going to have some revelation. That's interesting. He moved to Hollywood in 76, wrote for episodic television, co-scripted the feature film The Final Countdown, which is science fiction based. I did not know that. He taught screenwriting at the UCLA Film School. I bet that's where he met Bingaman. Because she would have gone, I'm sure she would have gone to UCLA. But let's look at his uh, later filmography and we find, do you remember a show called The Hitchhiker from 1983? Of course you don't remember it, but... It would not have been age-appropriate for a three-year-old. He also wrote several episodes of Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. 
wrote episodes of Vegas, wrote episodes of Bionic Woman. Now, that I didn't know. And I knew about him writing Doomwatch, but that was a British program. So by the time he moved to America, he was writing for Bionic Woman, which was a fairly high-profile high gig. But yeah, now I can't remember why you were asking this. You were asking this because... I was saying that I don't know the voice of either of these writers, but I also don't know the shows that they wrote on. I'm much more familiar with the voice of Jerry Davis from his books. Also, the fact that he co-wrote another series with Kit Pedler, who created um, the Cyberman called Doomwatch, which was all about environmental disasters. Mm. This is 1970. He also, with him, wrote a novel that you'll see remaindered in every single science fiction section of every used bookstore. It is called Mutant 59, The Plastic Eaters. I'm going to Half Price Books this weekend. You will find it. I will find it. I can guarantee you will find it. It will be there. Or at least until I bought, until I finally broke down and bought a copy and read it, I was seeing it everywhere and I was like, oh, well, I better read this since I've seen the televised episode it was based on. And it's a weird non-novelization of the first episode of Doomwatch because the Doomwatch crew don't appear in it and all sorts of other things happen. And it has one of the most achingly homophobic scenes I have ever read in a piece of British prose. Hmm. That's saying something. It made me hate both of them. Which might be one of the reasons why I'm reacting the way I do. And as much as I'd like to like this book, because obviously Bingham wrote it, and Davis didn't, and Davis actually is a good prose stylist, it's just, yeah, there's, there's something lacking in the prose style here, which could be attributed to an emerging writer rather than an experienced writer who's at the end of his career. Yeah, someone's kind of finding their legs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I could very well see Davis and Bingaman establishing a mentor-student relationship in which he says, you know, um, I've kind of pushed to write this book all this time. I really don't have the time or the energy for it. I want you to do it. Hmm. And she may have said, well, I like Doctor Who. Sure, I'll do it. Yeah. So I feel like the language itself is nothing spectacularly good. I didn't find it as spectacularly bad, but it produces some good images. So what I have right here is from, once again, the sequence that apparently was the whole book to me. The glass booth, she could see that Stephen had climbed on top of the steps, and she saw that Joey was leaning against the further set of steps and manicuring his nails with a gigantic nail file. (laughs) What's he doing? Dodo said, no longer trusting the slightest gesture of the clowns. Isn't it obvious, Clara said, not waiting for a reply. He's manicuring his nails. And it's about time, too. I thought that there was a nice creepiness of some of the simplicity of the images that might be from the original script or might be new. I don't know because I'm not familiar with with the original script. A lot of it's there. but Even though I wasn't knocked out by any particular sentence or statement in the book, I found that it had a a visual clarity that can be challenging to achieve for something that's plot-driven. And maybe that's what I didn't like about it because I'm familiar with the story. It's like, oh, I know what's going to happen here. They're going to jump there. They're going to slide there. That's going to happen, yada, yada, yada. It's almost like playing a video game again and being like, oh, i got to do this again. I had moments where I was very confused with what was actually happening. Okay, so you have okay. the opposite problem. Yeah. I'm Like, why did they yeah. win the first game? Yeah. 
Why did they win the first game? Because they figured out that the real game was identifying the cheating. And once they figured out what the real game was and played that and switched the blindfold, the transparent blindfold from the opaque blindfold, that's how they won. So what I, so what, this is once again the part that I responded to so okay. much. The real game isn't completing the obstacle course. The real game is it's having figuring all the, out that the clowns are cheating. Yeah, figuring out the clowns are cheating okay. and figuring out how to turn it around on them. And that's how they win. So my problem was expecting it to be more straightforward than it was. For that round, but then for some other ones, with the kitchen and the dance that went on seemingly infinitely for punishment, I thought those were much more muddled. The king and queen, I felt like I read the riddle (laughs) and the setup. And then once it was actually solved, blah, I was blah, like, blah, dolls, whatever. Sort yeah. of. Well, I read it. I read. I read the setup, and then I read what actually happened, and I was like, I never went back and read the setup again. But I was like, that didn't seem to match up. It's still confusing on screen too. And then with the pie maker and the sergeant, that was the only thing that, like, oh, like I said, I figured it out right away. Mm-hmm. But then with Cyril. There was a portion where it felt like he skipped a turn or something like yeah. didn't line up correctly. And I was just like, he's cheating, but also like, this isn't, it's not making sense. Yeah. It's not making sense. I think there are always two games is is part of the point. For, for the obstacle course, there's the, the obstacle course that's the first level and the second level of figuring out they're cheating. For the doctor, the first level is... Complete this puzzle in 1,032 moves, but the second layer is, while keeping an eye on your junior friends, who are obviously complete imbeciles, <laughs> as portrayed in the first chapter, making right. sure they don't die. Like, can you complete this task that's difficult, but not too bad for you, under this incredible stress? At I thought that it was presented as, as, always there's the game, but then there's the, the second level of the real game over it. Okay. Do they, yeah. ha- do they have to figure yeah. out that second level? They're told the first level, and I have to figure out the second one. Okay. But that doesn't work for all, for each of the rooms. No, and I think it, that that ones. ultimately is a failure. If I didn't pick up on that, yeah. if yeah. I didn't like get that that was... Because as a reader, you on a meta level should be get, have the dawning realization of, oh, that's what they're doing. And if you don't, then that's something that the yeah. author is Yeah. Doing. And as a veteran viewer and reader, I should be getting that too. And it was just like... Yeah. I don't think it was necessarily that it was too subtle for me. It's that I wasn't willing to give the text the credit for being able to be that subtle. Well, ultimately, it comes off as very straightforward and very much like face value. These are games, and these are the rules, and... Right. Some of the players aren't playing by the rules, but yeah. these are the games, and... But you, you win them by figuring that out. Yeah. But only at the beginning, you're right. They just find the key. Like, that. there's not a second level to that. Right. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a second, maybe, social level yeah. of the, the interaction between the sergeant and the cook, no. but there's not a second level to completing the task. Right. Unless the second level is Dodo figuring out that they live what she calls a secret life. Unless the second level is what... Maybe, eh, maybe there's more going on here than I thought maybe. initially. Maybe that's how they win that level, really. It's not by finding the key, but by her figuring out that they are not just mechanical beings. Maybe. That they are maybe. in some way, they have some kind of consciousness. But no, that doesn't make but then the next something game, the toy maker would want. But then the so. next game with the waltz yeah. in the dance floor, it's just like, oh, you mean all I have to do is make sure I get close enough to the TARDIS to... Yeah. Open the door and break the rhythm. Something more like it's the, a matter of breaking the, the rhythm. Scene at the end of the man who is Thursday. 
I'm talking about where it's like all the different objects and concepts waltzing oh, together, right. presided over mm-hmm. by this mysterious figure who mm-hmm. says, I am the Sabbath rest, I am the peace of God. I expected something more profound and maybe pretentious, but philosophical yeah. at the end. And then I was surprised that there was nothing. Yeah. Maybe that's the second layer to that one. There's nothing else there. <laughs> well, I do know that Brian Hale's original script would have been a little more interesting and depth, dark and deep like that because he was using characters from basically an early version of Waiting for Godot. I mean, it would have been a very, very different script indeed, especially knowing what I know about Brian Hale's work, but this is not a Brian Hale script ultimately. So interesting what we bring to this. I'm bringing all these personal experiences in the corporate world and in for-profit and not-for-profit education and in this you know, Salma Hayek piece from a few weeks ago, but I'm not bringing in the original play that it was supposed to have characters based on because I haven't read that. So Nor have I. So, I, so we are bringing in these more contemporary things right. that the author obviously did not have, well, at least some of them did not have in mind, maybe sure. on some level, and not bringing in things that the author of the teleplay explicitly had in mind. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is... Kind of the original story all over again. It's too many cooks. There are too many cooks in Mrs. Wiggins, um, Wiggins' uh, kitchen. But you could do so many, so much work for too many cooks. That's true. And they will. They will eventually. That's for true. Except I just can't get around lines like, Oh, that means I'll be coming on your square, Stephen. Uh, okay, so is it me, or are there a lot of almost lewd jokes in here, but not maybe. quite? Did you, uh, are they you designed finish? to make you feel like you have a dirty mind instead of like you just read a dirty joke? I, I think we just have dirty minds, to be. be honest. I mean, I would have loved to have asked Bingaman about that, but didn't get back, didn't hear her, uh, she didn't get back to me. I'm not even sure she's using her uh, that Twitter account. I think the one I ha- only one I have written down is I'll sweep him from behind. Yeah, <laughs> things like that. I'm like, okay, am I just that far gone in life that you know, in a children's book, I'm seeing these lines. But if you're going to do a little bit of body humor, that is how to do it so that you know your 12 year old yes. audience isn't probably going to see that. Yeah, so get maybe past I underestimate 12 year yeah, even though I, I just really would have liked it if certain, you know, mistakes weren't made, such as describing the Doctor's costume as Victorian and saying, therefore, that I was expecting have... him to say, no, bitch, it's Edwardian. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> having a zinger, having a, a little more I thought of an interaction. Like set up for the joke. Yeah. <laughs> you call no. yourself Celestial, but you know nothing of period He fashion. obviously knows nothing. <laughs> well, I think it's the writer that knows nothing, which makes me think it's not Jerry Davis. That it's going to be Alison Bingaman, because he's Edwardian. Um, would she have had... Having never worked on the show, do you think like less of a familiarity with the character in the era? I'm certain. Absolutely certain of it. Um, I actually, I think one of the things that made me like the story more than I expected in, in the beginning was the description of the Toymaker's office. I thought the term office was sarcastic. So once again, maybe oh. I'm giving more credit than it's due. Um, so <laughs> it was a very grand, vast scene in this, this See, office. I thought it was supposed to be that. But, but the idea of him going through... Uh, all these different miniatures, the Victorian house, mm. and the creepy little circus, and the different flopped over dolls, and like the long, thin mm. fingers. 
His eyes are referred to as being deep set and sparkling, but there's nothing like ethnically specific about it. Once, no, there isn't. In a way that I thought once again did work for creepiness when mm. they described the miniatures and oh, selecting yeah. the scene and selecting the Victorian house. But that was blown for me when the doctor does not correct the toy maker for saying that his costume is Edwardian as well. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. I think we couldn't do better than that. You couldn't get me an Edwardian dollhouse. Yeah. Right. Expect me to it's, live in this thing, in these conditions? Especially <laughs> since barbarians? His, you know, he's wearing his favorite, you know, yeah. like, please, you know, it's like someone <laughs> calling out something that's not designer or calling it the wrong designer. It's right. like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Like, this <laughs> isn't Victorian. This is Edwardian. How dare you make that? I do do feel a pang of conscience about that big, well, actually. <laughs> yeah. It seems like a dick move on my part. I, so. I felt like we, we've experienced the Doctor be a little more snarky and a little more... Have a little more back and forth with his antagonist. Yeah, how old is there wasn't Marshall? that there. No, because the doctor isn't there. How well, literally. <laughs> huh? How old is Dodo supposed to be? Oh Because he God, calls you her child in a way that I can't tell if it's <sighs> a little condescending to a teenager or super condescending to a twenty-something. Oh, they never establish her age properly. Is this just a thing with the female companions? Up like, to a point, yeah. Thirteen she, to thirty. She's supposed of? to be six, somewhere between probably fifteen and seventeen. Okay. She's still a teenager. Okay. Yes, I know. Told you. Yes, little child, I know. <laughs> and yeah, you're right. He is quite condescending to her, but he does talk, call her child and all that. And the way she acts in the arc, she's definitely more of a teenager, hmm. which is fine. But by the time we get to her last story she's going to be a prim proper young woman because she's set there are no other stories to tell well no not that (laughs) she's set side by side by two actual uh epitomes of characters from 1966 so you get swinging 60s people and you look at dodo and you say oh by contrast she's yeah i know i had the same problem yeah uh, FYI, we are addressing the kitty. We are addressing the kitty. The kitty is amazing. What a haircut. A couple of other things. Um, There is a missing join between the stories again. Ah. I'm sorry. I I missed a (coughs) story with characters called the Refusians. Yeah. Do they decline your credit card? (laughs) Thank you. We talked about that last time. We did talk about that. My hot take on that was what? (laughs) We talked about the fact that given Doctor Who nomenclature up to this point, they will either refuse them. Uh, the, it's like refuse bin? Or, or it's <laughs> refuse. garbage characters? Or trash. it's refuse. <laughs> utter trash. But anyway. Utter trash declines your credit card. <laughs> There's a missing join between this story and the next one because in the end of the TV version, Dodo still has the candies that Cyril gave her. Yeah. That actually happens in the book and it goes nowhere. Yeah. Um, and when the doctor bites into one, he breaks his tooth. <sighs> Because he thinks that's the last thing that the toy maker's doing to him and he breaks his tooth. And that's how the story ends. And that leads us right into the gunfighters because he has to find the dentist. And who should he find but Doc Holliday? Yeah, so it's kind of lovely that we have... Who do you always find when you're looking for a reputable dentist? Yeah. If not Doc Holliday. Exactly. I've decided... I think I've decided... (laughs) Doc Holliday... Among other things, I've decided I'm no fan of those novel writers who ignore the links to stories that follow their stories and are just like, oh, fuck that. I'm going to let the next writer do that. Because this one, this story picks up the missing link from the arc. 
But so they're not publishing order of story, though, right? So no. I mean, I, I do understand the wanting to the authors making wanting to make them standalone enough that they're not teasing a story that true may, may not, not come, come out, out for ten years or something. Yeah. That, that is true. But when you're reading them in story order, those linkages when they're not there are really just glaring. Sure. So let's, as we always do, good good reads. For online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this on the podcast and you want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, simply read the book, write a review on Goodreads, write a comment somewhere, send us an email, let us know it so that we can read your review here. The average rating for this story out of five stars is 3.34, which is actually higher than the arc, believe it or not. Here are some sample reviews. N... As in the N word, I guess. N gives it two stars and says the TV episode has such a great sense of mystery to it. I thought that reading the novelization would add to that sense of wonder. Instead, it actually makes the story seem much more mundane. And the narration, because they were listening to the book on tape, I guess, sounds like it was written by a particularly bored robot. That's a pity. Will the narration be a narration of this novel or of the script? Um, that's a, that's a really good question, because there isn't... Oh, I know what they were listening to. They weren't listening to the Unabridged book, because that doesn't exist yet. Uh, I don't think it ever will. Uh, what they were listening to was the BBC audio release of the audio of the episodes. Mm, okay. And it would have been Peter Purvis probably doing the narration, because yeah. Jackie Lane, once she left Doctor Who, good for her, refused to ever have anything to do with it again. So is that the standard way they release them, where you have just the audio of the episode plus additional voiceover? Yes. Okay. Yeah, if you're doing it in purely audio form. Okay. Which makes it weird when they've done audio releases of episodes that we have all of the episodes of. Mm. It's the weirdest thing. <laughs> Right. Why are you adding more to this? We already have everything. Like the motion comic. Why does it exist? Exactly that. Ian Hamilton gives it three stars and says, Not my favorite, mainly because it's fairly dull. (laughs) But I think the episode, should they ever be found, probably were too. I would agree with this. The Doctor is missing for large parts of the book, as Hartnell was from the middle episodes of filming. It also revisited my wish for Dodo's quickened extinction. Oh! Yes. Have to admit... We see what you did there, sir. He went yeah. at him. Have Good to lover. admit, I completely miss the racist overtones, but Philip Sandifer makes a strong case on this in his TARDIS Ruditorium blog, and that's the blog I was reading, where Philip Sandifer takes this story apart and says it's just racist as hell. Talking about the episode, the novel, or both? Uh, all of it. Um, well, he actually doesn't talk about the book. Doesn't talk about the book at all. He's talking I, I would about the argue original. they have succeeded in... You could look at it either as successfully excising that element or whitewashing that element. Yeah, I think it whitewashes it more than anything. And Jules gives it four stars, saying, This is one of the two Doctor Who stories along with the demons that really creeped me out as a kid, and it gives me the shivers even now. I can feel the tension and still see the chair folding up and, and leaving just a playing card. The book isn't as good as watching it on TV, but it gets four stars and it evokes these memories. So Jules must be significantly older because these episodes haven't existed since uh, yeah. the 70s. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask your opinions uh, on a scale of one to five. Dalton, what would you give this? I'm going to go with a two. Really? Mm. Holy crap. That's you have low changed. for me. That is, for Dalton, uh, that is just stocks 
pillory, the dunking chair. Yes. All of your early modern late review. Public, public humiliations. Who are you and what have you done with our sweet boy? I don't yes. know. The well, painkillers were supposed to make you friendlier. But I no. broken foot is... Maybe well, the wine a... should have done mm. that. Um, <laughs> let the light record show that we are two-thirds of the way through the second bottle. Yes, and yeah. still he's giving you two. Um, Why two? <laughs> I don't absolutely hate it. I just like it. It just doesn't really do very much for me. Like, mm -hmm. even other previous books that we've read that I felt were very formulaic and very predictable right. had moments where it redeemed itself. But this this just doesn't... Eh. I don't know. It just doesn't do anything for me. As I was reading it, it was just like... Mm. Eh. Okay. <laughs> Probably don't like it as much because I was confused about a lot of things and I felt like a lot of the details were confusing and I... I don't know. It just, okay. I don't absolutely hate it, but it's it 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 wasn't very exciting. There's not there there was no reason for me to care about anything that was happening. Um, you know, and even probably having the doctor be absent, I didn't have him there to make me feel like I should care. Yeah. Usually, you know, if the doctor felt like they were in peril or in danger or there was something that you know, we. This is a problem. We need to solve. We need to get out of here. We need to, you know, escape. Yeah. It didn't feel that way. It yeah. felt very much safe. Like yeah. no matter what, like the nothing they were was going to happen. Yeah, they were going to be okay. They were going to be fine. And even though I felt like Dodo was going to die, even though she, she didn't, right. it was just like it. okay, all right, whatever. Um, yeah, I just I didn't feel really attached to any of it. Okay, all right, Allison. So, thinking of this as a book for 12 to 17-year-olds in 1985... <laughs> Which we should. Yeah. Um, let's compare the message about nuclear weapons in this and say... Um, it's that 80s movie where the kids scream Wolverines whenever they put it to the Soviets in the Midwest. Oh, Red Dawn. Yes, yes, which I've only seen parts of. But <laughs> 1984. I saw, that, I saw that in the theater. In recent years, like, oh, seriously? Anyway... Um, what passes for commentary. Yeah. Um, the description of nuclear weapons, and he's, he's talking about not just nuclear weapons, but like submarines and, and bombers and, and uh, some kind of land vehicle they're designed to deliver them. He says that these are the ultimate playthings because they are designed never to be used, only to be played with. And I think for a teenager, teenager in the mid-80s, that's not a bad way to summarize the concept of nuclear weapons. That's true. They are, they are the ultimate playthings designed never to be used. And I thought that that worked um, as a metaphor. Um, I think the simplicity worked for me in two ways. Number one, it didn't have pretense to language and complex plotting. It was pretty straightforward and breezy. But secondly, it allowed me to bring in these other outside experiences mm -hmm. and attach it in a way that the story itself didn't interfere with. Okay. Yeah. But it sounds like the cat disagrees with you. That's the fine. Cat, the cat may interfere with it because that's <laughs> the most amazing cat that I've yes. seen in in recent years. So, so out of five stars, what would you give this? Well, so I, I, I think that most of the things that I liked so much about the book were really in the first 30 pages or so. <laughs> okay. So... 
I'm going to go with a three as a whole, which for me is a rave. And might be, probably is the first time ever that I've given a higher score than Dalton. Yeah, Which makes me question my identity and his both. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Wow. There's an additional item I thought of here I think I brought to it is I just, uh, I, in my infinite wisdom... Rented the Darren Aronofsky film Mother for Christmas Eve, really? which will go down as my renting magnolia, like my renting magnolia and Elizabeth for having my wisdom teeth removed Ooh. in terms of bad timing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my, own, my only experience on opioid type medication was seeing those two movies. Anyway, wow. oh my god! And there's a similar concept here of this sort of not intentionally cruel, just sort of unfeeling, easily angered, easily amused, and yet often impassive deity who creates and destroys worlds so casually. Yeah. In a full circle way that I think it's, it, 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 it almost lost to me the first time through that the villain is is threatening the heroes with complete annihilation and destruction in a way that's so much less painful and yet so much more profound than most of the Who villains we've seen up to this point. It's so, so I think the simplicity works for it. So. Okay. So out of five stars? I say three. You say three. And for me, I'm going to surprise you even further. It's going to be a point five or a seven on a scale of five. A negative five. Close. <laughs> Close. It's a one. Is there an imaginary number? Oh, no. It's oh. a one. It's a one. I'm still willing wow. to give it some credit because it, it exists on the page. I mean, this is like me giving a student a D. It's like you typed something, so <laughs> You made you. an effort. <laughs> you made an effort. F for effort. Well, I, I, I'm not even sure I would give it a D if we were talking about A through F because, again, as we've talked about before, the whole point of novelization is to faithfully recreate what happened on the screen for those that don't have access to it. But maybe on, not recreate all the original racism. No, full and no, and, <laughs> and on that, on that, um, on that scale, it succeeds even more because it doesn't do that. It doesn't reproduce the racism that's there. It faithfully reproduces the story. It gets very anvilicious when it comes to bringing in that theme about nuclear war. I didn't appreciate either of those two-by-fours to the face, and I was a teenager in 1986, thank you very much. So even then, I was thinking, oh, God, okay, I've heard this time and time again. Because from 1984 to 1986, everything was about the horrors of nuclear war, and this felt like it was... in shoved in. But I, in my defense, I was five when this book came out, and I would have been... Uh, not able to read it oh, no. <laughs> in terms of reading level, no. but it would it, it would not be a bad way to introduce the concept, maybe for the first time. Yeah. Maybe I'm imagining a reader who doesn't exist. Maybe, um, but again, I'm not taking issue with your reading of it. But my own reading of it is based on this is only the second time I've ever read it, and I didn't enjoy either time. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, there are so many things we didn't get into. Age more like cottage cheese and like wine. Well, yeah, I. Things that we could have gotten into, such as the fact that the Doctor and the Celestial Toymaker are presented here as ancient enemies, even though this is ostensibly their first encounter, and we don't know when they've encountered each other before, and there's none of the strange warmth that Hartnell has towards his enemy in the first and fourth episodes when he actually does appear. It just doesn't translate to the page. But then there's not much Hartnell here, and that's the other thing. Hartnell 
is the Doctor. The Doctor is the center of these stories. Whenever you don't have the Doctor as the center of these stories, except for the new series, they don't really work as Doctor Who stories. He doesn't have any more personality than Stephen or Dodo does. No, that's the thing. We, We expect the Doctor to be irritable. We expect him to be irascible. We expect him to be a trickster. He does do that at the very end of it but on the page he doesn't even solve the problem the same way he does on screen which is he deliberately mimics the celestial toy maker's voice he does his voice and that's what sets them free and then he bites into the jawbreaker and it breaks his jaw and they have to go off for uh it's just there could have been so much more so i'm probably is that a plot element or something that actually happened to hartnell it's no it's on the uh, uh no it's in the it's in the story Missed that jawbreaker part. Okay. Yeah, that he... The, the candies that the candy. he got from Cyril. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So, and I've lost my way. What was I talking about? I was talking about the reason why I probably should not be giving this a one. Because if we're talking about in terms of a novelization, it does what it needs to do. And nothing more. For a story like this that I really hate to begin with... I need it to do something more. Mm. I need to know what and who the Celestial Toymaker is. I need a little more character development with Steven and Dodo, even though it's not there in the script. I need Ian Martyr to come along and make some sort of weird reference to the Doctor's second heart almost giving out mm. when he turns invisible or something like that, or how the Time Lords have always been have always known about the Celestial Toymaker and have always been afraid of him. I, I need something like that, and I'm not getting it. And that's why it gives me, I give it a one, because it bored me. This is more like my impression of St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre story, where there's so much there that it felt like a wasted opportunity. Yes. But in this case, something that's a wasted opportunity to you, I saw as more of a Rorschach for things I was already thinking about. Yeah. But in both places, you have to bring in exterior things for it to be a story of significance. But you also notice the difference there. Massacre was another story that underwent huge rewrites. Mm-hmm. The novelization we got was from the original script. Mm-hmm. So you do have an author coming in and saying, I'm going to change this entirely. Sure. And you get it. That's fine. Here, nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. I would have preferred Hale's original script. Mm. I would have loved to see what that Wait, was there like. is a huge change. It wasn't between the episode and the novelization. It was between the original script and the film script. Yeah, there is yeah. still an, epi- an, an element of major change, just a different stage. Exactly. And I just yeah. don't think it's anywhere there that we can access it. Mm. So, yeah, you can't win them all. No. Well, thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time... Well, I have a feeling we're all going to enjoy the next novelization because I've already started it on audio and oh my god, it sings, it's beautiful. We get to Donald Cotton's last novelization, The Mm. Gunfighters. Oh, very good. Yes. Oh, I'm excited. So we've got Donald Cotton. Uh, I sent you all the audio. I just want him to read my short stories and think they're funny. From Beyond the Brave. Yeah, I know. If he were still alive, I'd want that too. In the meantime, if you liked what we've heard here, like us on Facebook at DW, I'm sorry, Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. We'd also like you to help us celebrate our first anniversary by please sending us a message through Facebook and letting us know what some of your favorite moments were from our first year by letting us know what episode it was and what the time reference was for that favorite moment. And if I get enough of these by the next time, I will string these together and try to do some sort of greatest hits and try to put it at the end of the uh, uh, next episode. 
You can also visit our nearly pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtariabc. Feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes on YouTube at uh, forward slash user forward slash emperordaleks forward slash videos. Follow us on Twitter at dwtariabc. Subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, sometimes on Podbean, sometimes not, and on that other thing that I keep forgetting, and it's the Android Sound Store, it's the Aku Music, Google Play, thank you so much, that's exactly what it is. It's harder to find us there, but you can find us there. If all else fails you, and it might, because that's the world we live in, email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye.